Welcome to the first official episode of My Writing Sucks. And if you haven't caught on yet, the title of the podcast is completely clickbaity to get you to click on it if you're feeling like your writing sucks, so I can spend the next 20-something episodes proving that you're absolutely 100% wrong and that your writing is certainly not as bad as you think and that it really just matters that you're trying and growing and getting better. I like to think of judging your first draft as judging a cake before it's baked before it's even mixed. Like, of course it's not going to taste good. Of course it's not going to look right. It's not done. So don't judge your first draft of your first novel off of your favorite author's final draft that's gone through countless revisions and who knows how many editors. That's just unfair and you're setting yourself up for failure. But anyhow, with all that said, let's jump in and totally judge Creative Canopy and my 14-year-old self's writing ability. And honestly, I have no clue where the idea came from, but the basic concept is your most generic fantasy world with your most generic female protagonist, and there's a dragon, and adventures ensue. That is the summary of Creep Canopy, with a, a lot of surprising complications that were totally unnecessary that we'll delve into when they arise, but basically, cliche fantasy is the plot of the novel. And just so you know, by giving all this summary, I am 100% just delaying the inevitable, which is, of course, actually reading the draft aloud to the internet. Here we go. Cree of Canopy, part one of the Canopy series by McKenna Myers. Because fun fact, this was supposed to be a five-book series. And before the story even starts, we're off to a, a great beginning, because I have a page of five completely unrelated quotes from Maya Angelou, Albert Einstein, Helen Keller, Eleanor Roosevelt, and William Shakespeare. And I just think what makes me laugh about these quotes is that they're they're just so disconnected from each other, but also the story at large. I guess I just thought you had to open your book with a bunch of generic quotes you would find engraved on something at Hallmark. The whole thing just feels like 14-year-old me striving for some kind of professionalism when I, fun fact, did not know uh, what the tab key was. So instead of pressing tab to indent, I would aggressively press the space bar. So all of my indents are really uneven and inconsistent. So professionalism was not a concern of my 14-year-old self. And you know what? For the sake of perpetuity, or if that's the right word, I'll just read them. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you, Maya Angelou. Only a life lived for others is a life worthwhile, Albert Einstein. Alone we can do so little, together we can do so much, Helen Keller. You must do things you think you cannot do, Eleanor Roosevelt. In this, our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything, William Shakespeare. Why did I put those quotes there? No clue. Do they have any relevance to the story whatsoever? None. At all. Did I just see them on my Pinterest homepage because that was where I spent a lot of my time circa 2013? Absolutely. And it is with that utterly pointless assortment of quotes that we begin our story. Chapter 1. The plush royal carriage came to a screeching halt as we pulled into the small village my family was visiting today. It was somewhere in the valley province, not far from the castle. An announcer's horn blared over the cheering crowd who came to an abrupt silence. 
May I present the royal family, King Rutherford Everson the Twentieth. The crowd cheered as my father emerged out into the dreary village. His patriotic light green robes shone onto the crowd, making him all the more compelling. The cheers echoed like a roll of thunder until the announcer signaled the next entrance. Queen Margareta Everson! My stepmom gracefully emerged from the carriage, her silk dress flowing immaculately. Seeing her get all the, that praise made my blood boil. My true mother had left this earth five years ago due to the fever. It was much too soon a parting, in my opinion. One paragraph in, and we're getting into some serious exposition. Yeesh. Margareta showed no regard toward me. She views me as less than pond scum from the swamp province. Prince Rutherford Everson the Twenty-First. My conceited twelve-year-old brother hopped out of the carriage, loving the applause. He fluffed up his blonde hair and approached the stage. I saw a glint of mischief behind his glowing blue eyes. He loved to cause trouble. Out of all my siblings, I could identify with him the most. We both had a certain way of causing trouble wherever we went. Princess's lovely Lily Haven, an elegant cherry blossom. My sixteen and ten-year-old sisters got out, their hair and dresses nearly identical. My parents had an odd choice in names. I think they were making an attempt at regal and high society status. Okay, so the names. They kind of go adjective, noun, noun, wonderful rose petal, beautiful moon orchid, elegant lily haven, or whatever it was. I don't know why I chose those names. I just thought they sounded fancy. So there you go. Princess's wonderful rose petal and beautiful moon orchid. My six-year-old half-sister Rose got out first. Her tiny feet strode elegantly toward the others, already prim and proper. Dear little Rosie, darling of the provinces, wasn't so sweet to me. Not two months after my mother's death did Rosie appear out of Miss Margareta herself. I don't like the phrase out of Miss Margareta, but anyway. I credit two things to the loss of my mother, a fever and a broken heart. When she found out about the scandal, it destroyed her. Her death was on Margareta's hands. Yeesh. Subtle. I slid awkwardly out of the carriage, almost tripping over my many layers of petticoats within my dresses. Okay, headphones down. Because she's quirky! <laughs> I'm not like other girls! I digress. Also, there was literally no reason that she should have gotten out of the carriage last, because she's the second oldest. I think I just had her go last, so it would be more obvious that she tripped, but it just doesn't make sense to go wildly out of age order just for her to trip in front of everybody to emphasize how she is not like other girls. But anyway, let's keep reading. I saw the faces of the peasants, labored and worn, yet also full of hope, staring at us. I suddenly felt self-conscious of, of my over-the-top lavender dress. Well, not like I hadn't already. The beating shimmered and the silk glowed in the high midday sun. I stood out enough, all right. The peasants were dressed in tattered shells of clothing courtesy of my father's ruthless, never-ceasing greed. In front of me stood a, a sea of brown, gray, and beige. Toward the back, a girl about my age, fourteen, <laughs> smooth, <laughs> stood on a rickety wooden crate, staring at the stage in pure wonder. Her deep brown hair was scraggly and her body looked worn, much more so than an average teenage girl. The expression on her face made it seem like this was the most exciting day of her life. The excitement about to be destroyed when my father attempted to justify his decision for heavier taxing. Citizens of Grassland, you are a hard-working people. He paused, searching for the right words. Utterly inspiring, really. You toil the ground and earn your fair share fairly. That is why the kingdom needs to take its fair share. We've kept your lands on the eve of perfection. We work hard for you. 
He spoke like an enchanting siren, luring the people into their demise. If you wish for your lives to improve, simply follow us. We care for you. You, the people who add color to this beautiful, courageous, and strong nation. Long live the provinces. He raised his hand in victory as the crowd cheered numbly under his false sedating prophecies. That was it? <laughs> that, that speech was like 30 seconds. Maybe. And they called all the people into the common area or whatever, and that was the only speech that the king had to do? That's friggin' ridiculous. What in the world was the point of that? I do not know. But moving on. Once crammed into the royal carriage, Lily ranted in disgust. Why do we have to visit these ugly rural towns? She shivered. They are so not elegant and refined like the capital. My dad took a deep breath in. Look, Lily dear, I hate it too. They're so simple, but we have to keep their hopes up. It is the only way to keep my popularity at such a high standard. He fluffed his golden gray hair like my brother did while enjoying his reflection in the tinted window. So, to keep your popularity up, you lie to your adoring subjects? Soon they're going to find out you just use the money for yourself. I mean, the luxury bubble bath and the lawn bowling sets are just the tip of the iceberg. How about the golden egg collection? I said harshly. Yeah, I don't think harshly needs to be in there. My gosh. I really liked adverbs. <laughs> Rose gawked at me from Margareta's lap. Daddy isn't lying to them. He's just stretching the truth in his favor. She smiled contentedly and fiddled with her honey-blonde curls. Rose was a little brat, but I did feel a bit of pity toward her. She was being brainwashed into her parents' beliefs. Cherry threw me an angry look. Yeah, Orchid, how dare you accuse father of lying? I clenched my fists and glanced back at Cherry, irate. Huh. That was a five-dollar college word for this fourteen-year-old student. My name isn't Orchid, it's Cree. Lily pulled out some rouge, which I spelled rogue, by the way, which I think makes it better, and was applying it generally to her cheeks. Orchid, just because you were grandma's favorite doesn't mean you should inherit her name. The thought of my grandma dampened my mood. She had been Queen Cree Everson one generation ago. Born a mere peasant, she grew up just like the subjects she would soon rule over. My grandfather, King Rutherford Everson, Everson the Nineteenth, denied tradition to marry the commoner. It was the love story of the century. She had been the only one who understood me. Because I'm not like other girls! Obviously that's not in the text. Anyway. I loved her even more than my own mother at times. Grandma had dubbed me her mini-Cree, considering I copied almost every move she made. The name Cree just stuck. My fondest memory is of her kind and compassionate eyes staring down at me as a toddler. She had died from the fever four years ago, not long after my mother left me. She abandoned her mini-Cree to be alone with her horrible family forever. Yeesh. Abandoned is quite the harsh word there. Girl, she just died. It wasn't her fault. She died of generic fever, TM. Not even the name, just the fever. It's like Victorian novel disease. That's what everybody dies of in those books. But anyway, I shook myself from my woes. I will always be Cree, Lily. No, you will always be beautiful Moon Orchid Everson, second eldest princess. I almost exploded on her. Almost. My demon for a sister continued applying <laughs> rogue, <laughs> making her look more and more jester-like than usual. My light blonde hair glinted in the sun as I ran it through my fingers. I sighed in hopes we would reach the palace soon. The wide gates of the courtyard swung slowly open and revealed the outer courts of the palace grounds. Knights milled around aimlessly and stout noblemen rushed in every direction, papers and books spilling out of their hands. The outer court was pretty pointless. My father claimed it would provide extra protection during an invasion the likes of which never happened. The noblemen serving in the royal house of law lived out here, too. 
I'll admit, I've never been comfortable with the fact that 80 obese men lived in my front yard. <laughs> okay, 14-year-old me, for as bad as her writing was, did have a few, like, funny zinger lines every now and then that kind of just come out of nowhere, but I think that's one of them. I actually find that quite funny. Good job, 14-year-old me. If that's the only good thing in the chapter, 10 out of 10, A for effort. When the carriage finally pulled up in front of the palace doors, I dashed out and ran up the steps. The grand staircase was at least 40 feet long leading up to the majestic front door. An intricate design was carved by hand, depicting everything that represents the valley province. The glistening wheat fields, the capital, the lovely country towns. To the left and right, turrets arose off the main building in their marbled glory, spiraling up to the heavens. My dad called after me, Orchid, go straight to Tudor Brimley, your lessons aren't finished. I rolled my eyes and kept going, giving him no acknowledgement. He rarely ever paid attention to me anyway. Horace stood at the top of the steps, staring at me expectantly. He happened to be our butler, an unfriendly nanny of sorts. He knew everything about each member of the royal family, where they were supposed to be and when seemed to be his specialty. His plump, solemn face caught my gaze as I dashed past him. Lessons, Miss Orchid. Yeah, yeah, I know. Go deal with Miss Lily or something. I sped walked into the grand arched doorway. The foyer was enormous, with a ceiling at least three stories high. Murals of all the kings of the past painted the walls. Basically, a bunch of my fat dead relatives graced the entrance to our home. My father chose such fine decor. See? Funny! Funny! Nice. Anyway. I paused as I passed the mural depicting my grandma. She was absolutely tranquil, stuck up on the wall. That was definitely the only mural I like in here. We're gonna ignore my, like, horrible tense switching back between past and present. It makes me... makes me itchy. I just hate it. <laughs> anyway. Her figure was captured perfectly, small and dainty yet strong. Her hair was in a plate that draped down her shoulder in one perfect silver rope with a jewel crown placed on her head. I sighed heavily and kept walking. I would just like to note that I very intentionally included the word plate instead of braid because I just learned that word in like a vocabulary unit in my English class, so really applying my education in that paragraph. After four flights of stairs and a couple of hallways, I reached my chamber. It was small compared to everything else in the palace, but it was cozy. Even that being so, it was larger than many houses I'd seen in the country. In the corner, a giant window overlooked the entire central part of the valley. The view still paralyzes me every time I look through it. That tense is horrible. <laughs> anyway. The current afternoon sun was no exception. Green painted the sides of the valley as sunlight gleamed off the tips of the wheat crops to the east. The capital city buzzed with people in carts who from a distance looked merely like ants. I walked over to my intricately carved bureau and leaned up against the side. The symbols of the valley province, grapevines and peacocks, wove around the exterior. Okay, back up. I'm 80% sure both grapevines and peacocks are symbols of Dionysus, the Greek god of, like, drunkenness and revelry. Not what I was going for, but there you go. Do with that information what you will. I'm not sure about the peacocks, but definitely grapevines. Anyway, the little handles on the front were designed to resemble orchids, my namesake. I fingered the side, finding the little notches my mom had used to measure me since I was able to stand. Since last year, I'd grown an inch, making me a staggering five foot three. My question for fantasy novels is, why do they always have, like, standard U.S. measurements of feet and miles? The rest of the whole world doesn't even use that. Why does this fictional world have to as well? I don't know. Seems rather ethnocentric, but we're just going to gloss past that. I really didn't like being so small at 14. Nobody took me seriously. They tend to ask me if I'm nine. When I deny it, they pinch my cheeks and tell me how cute I am. I changed into a normal cloth dress. The simple floral fabric didn't make a statement. I could easily blend in with the staff. 
My siblings wouldn't be caught dead in something like this. They'd like to be in those giant puffy traps. Hey, Marilyn. I waved to the kind old maid as I walked down the stairs. Miss Cree? She greeted with a smile as I passed. The staff always called me Cree, which I greatly appreciated. In return, I took it to heart to learn everyone's name. I considered them my, fr my friends, family even. When I reached the bottom of the stairs, I thought about turning right and going to my lessons with Tudor Brumley. Then I wondered what I was thinking and went left, to a different type of lesson. I dashed out the staff's door in the back of the palace. The afternoon was perfect for lessons, not hot or too cold. I ambled my way through the grassy field to the far left section of the inner court, standing right where he always stood, was Steef. Funny side note here. I named him Steef, S-T-E-F-F, -F, because that year my mother's high school teacher. My mother had a student named Steef who was super funny and she'd talk about him all the time, so I never met him, but I stole his name and put it in the story. It's kind of an awful name. And I, anyway. Steef, ready to start? I ran up to his side and he smiled. Steef acknowledged me with a flick of his sword and a genuine smile. He took off his helmet, revealing his curly red hair and his, and his face perfectly dotted with freckles. He bowed very low. Miss Cree, at your service. I caught him laughing and poked him. Steve, we've been through this so many times, you don't have to bow to me. He leaned back up and walked over to a very full bush. I know, Cree, can't you take a joke? So, ready for your lessons? I hate how lessons is in quotations here because it sounds like a little sexual, and I don't love that. Like, lessons? Mm. But that's not what I was going for. It just sounds really pervy. <laughs> moving on. Moving past that. He tossed me my sword. It was a beautiful silver blade with a brass handle. Nothing special, except that Steve had made it just for me, which I would say, side note, makes it totally special. The dimensions were perfect and the weight was flawless. When I was doing a move correctly, the sword felt like a weightless extension of my arm. You know I am, I smiled brightly. Steve was the best swordsman I'd ever met. He made a pretty terrific teacher, too. Okay, come here. For a while, I've been teaching you striking and blocking, both very vital during battle. He lunged toward my middle, and I swung my sword upwards, blocking it with blocking his worn-down regulation braid. Very nice, Cree. Two years has taught you much, at least with your reflexes. He sounded pleased with my work. Okay, so I just realized he said two years. Cree is 14, so that means she's been doing lessons with him since she was 12. He's a little bit older. I remember thinking he was probably like 16 or 17. So I want to know how this started, how a 12-year-old girl started, a 12-year-old princess started working with an older teenage knight to learn sword fighting. I literally never once considered these things when I was writing it, but it's, it's kind of weird the more you think about it. So we're just going to not. Moving on. Now, to warm up, we bobbed and jabbed and weaved for half an hour until Steve surrendered from exhaustion. I smirked. I could go for hours, Steve. I know. You've got the energy of a herd of stallions. His face suddenly became solemn as he continued. Now, on a serious note, I've been waiting for the right time to teach you this move. This move will, I guarantee, save your life in a duel. Not that I expect a lady of your status to be doing such things, he laughed lightly. It was taught to me by the horn blue signaling for the knights to fall in. <laughs> Convenient horn! Yeesh. Ah, dang that horn. Whoa, language, Steve. Jeez. I'll teach you next time. Sorry we couldn't do anything new. I shrugged. It's okay. I'll see you soon enough. He dashed off, his armor clinking as he ran. I carefully concealed my sword back in the bush and strolled back through the fields, off to my real lessons. I have so many questions about that scene, but mostly, I want to ask my 14-year-old self why I decided to make sword fighting such a big part of this novel. 
but I did literally zero research whatsoever and just made up all of the moves and whatnot. And it's just kind of a joke. So don't come after me if you actually fence or something like that. That's not accurate, you know, and all that crap. Because, yeah, I know it's not accurate. I was 14. I did zero research. I was flying by the seat of my pants. But anyway, let's move past Steve. Ah, Miss Orchid, Patrick Kelper Sands was the second man to become a first-class nobleman. I sighed. Sorry, Tudor Brumley. The forty-year-old man already had graying hairs, thanks to me. I don't mean to be difficult, I just am sometimes. He slammed the history book closed. Dismissed. He fluffed his hair and went back to, into the supply room, probably to slam his head against a wall. Funny! Nice. I hopped up and walked into the hallway. Why do we have to know the names of a bunch of noblemen? I mean, really, will that ever come up in conversation? Hi, nice to meet you. Do you happen to know who the second man to become a first-class nobleman was? Why, yes, I do. Patrick Kelper Sands, I believe. Thank you, kind stranger. Honestly. See, that's funny. That's funny. I kind of like that. Lily walked gracefully around the corner. She looked in my direction and smirked. What, Lily? What is it now? I said, slightly agitated for no reason. She came up next to me and said happily, the son of a duke from the coastal province is coming to visit me. My true love is finally in my sights, she sighed dreamily. I bet he's interested in marriage. Lily, every time a man under 30 enters the castle, you suspect he's interested in marriage. <coughs> Boom! Roasted! Get him! <laughs> she stuck her nose in the air and kept on walking. I taunted further. I bet he's horrible, just like they all are and always will be. Lily glared at me. Well, at least my prince is coming. Yours never will. No prince would ever like you. You're, you're rebellious, rash, and... She paused for a moment, searching for the right word. She finally spit out. Annoying! You're just a lost cause, Orchid. She stormed away in aggravation. Normally, that wouldn't faze me, but for some reason she managed to hit a nerve. I dashed down the stairs to the palace kitchen, with steam nearly blowing from my ears. Yet somehow, one glistening tear traced down my cheek. And that's the end of chapter one. <laughs> Well, we are certainly off to um, some kind of start with this story. But now having read all that, my goal for this podcast is to talk a little bit about writing and what we can learn from the chapter that we just read. And I think something that needs to be talked about with this first chapter here is the goal of first chapters in general. And the goal of any first chapter of any book is to hook your reader and get them interested in reading the rest of the story. Because the first chapter is also what you would um, potentially be submitting to agents when you're querying your novel. So you really need to be showcasing the best of your writing and the best of your story. Even though like your favorite moments might come deeper into the plot, the first chapter needs to be engaging enough to make a reader want to read more. And having read the first chapter of Cree of Canopy, it does not do that at all whatsoever, <laughs> remotely. It doesn't set up any kind of larger conflict. All we get is the basic sense of some familial tension between Cree and her family, specifically Lily. We don't even really get a whole lot of detail on why she hates her family, other than she's like salty that her grandmother died and kind of mad at her mom for dying too. Also, Margareta's kind of a villain, but there's the big thing about this chapter is that nothing happens. They go on the tour. Cree does nothing except look. They go home. She vaguely sword fights with Steve for a paragraph and a half. She does lessons that are frustrating with Bremley and then like randomly bumps into Lily in the hallway. She takes not a whole lot of agency in the story 
and there's just there's just nothing happening. This does the opposite of everything that a first chapter is supposed to do. I think about this chapter in comparison with the first chapters of two other middle grade novels that I've written. So the first one was about a girl whose mother has breast cancer, and the first chapter opens with the day they shave her mother's head. That is a very visceral reminder of what is going on, the whole family is involved, and it really gets you invested in the emotions and presents the problem immediately. The other book opens with a girl stealing from a convenience store, but you don't know why. So immediately you want to know, is this girl stealing because she's a delinquent, or is she stealing because she needs the food? And then you have to read the second chapter to find out why in her situation. More than anything, what Creative Canopy lacks is a hook to get readers interested. If I were to pick this book up off the shelf, I would put it right back, even in the target demographic when I was 14, because I don't know anything about the characters, I don't know anything at all about the plot, because honestly at this point I didn't have a plot when I was writing it, to be absolutely fair. But that's another problem in itself. The first chapter is really the only chance you have to grab your reader. You need to make them care about your characters and the situation that they're in immediately, or they're just going to put your book down. And that's the hard truth of it. Another obvious issue with this chapter is the erratic use of tense, which, surprise surprise, is a problem in the absolute rest of the novel. I also struggled with the perspective when I first started writing, and I vividly remember jumping between first and third, so like I said, Cree said, which is so weird because those tenses are so different. The other glaring issue that I find with this first chapter on a more macro level is my inability to introduce characters and kind of backstory in a fluid way. I just kind of throw all of the siblings out there at once with their long, confusing names mixed in with their ages, and you aren't quite sure who's who, and they aren't given distinguishing personality traits, and then on top of that I'm trying to throw in the detail that the mom died of the fever, but the grandma died of the fever, but I straight up don't think I say who died first, and honestly in my head I can't even remember who I had die first either. It's just too much to be thrown at the reader all at once. I would have rather seen those details slowly peppered in throughout the first chapter, or even the first two or three, instead of getting it all in there in the first paragraph. Unless it's explicitly, is that the right word? Unless it's directly necessary to understand the opening scene, I don't think it's necessary to include all of that backstory. That can be unrolled slowly as you start moving with the story and caring about the characters more. A good moment to have done that for the first time could have been when Cree was walking in through the foyer when she saw all of those, those murals. That could have been a great time to introduce the grandma initially and then have her ha um, have all those thoughts about her name and how that's Cree, I'm Cree. It could have been sweet, but instead it it felt more shoehorned in in the beginning as well as there, and it was just awkward. And the last big flaw that I want to point out about this chapter in hopes that you can learn something from it is my horrific pacing. As I kind of said, nothing happens in this chapter, but I have trouble transitioning from nothing to nothing. If you go back and listen, I spend a lot of time talking about where she's walking, just in a very directional sense. Going through the castle, going back down to the lessons, walking through the foyer. There's no reason, really, to include those transition scenes. I could have instead jumped immediately from her hopping out at the palace and describing the nobleman to the lessons with Steve. There, there's zero reason to kind of show these these transitions. It's like set changing. I think in metaphors, so 
so roll with me here, set changes in theater occur in the dark because they're not supposed to be focused on. It's just the lights are the lights go down, the sets change, the lights come back up, and you're in a new place. And in a sense, uh, a a break, a page break in fiction is kind of the same thing. You just kind of accept, oh, we're in a new place now. And I didn't quite understand that concept, and I thought I had to explain everything to the writer. So when it comes to your pacing, think of it like those set changes. You can just make them really as dramatic as you need to and jump from scene to scene, and trust that your reader understands um, where they are in, in time and space. If you describe your setting well enough, there won't be any confusions. Did I describe my setting well enough in Free of Canopy? Absolutely not. So maybe I was trying to overcompensate. But I do think my 14-year-old self does need to be commended for two things. First, there were some pretty funny lines, I think, in this first chapter that honestly made me laugh out loud when I read them again for the first time because they were so unexpected. And Cree has a very sarcastic voice that I have kept in a lot of my other narrators that I've chosen to do first person because it's so fun to write. Really, it was the wit of my 14-year-old self um, coming out on the written page, which is honestly a lot of fun for me to read. And the other thing that I do think 14-year-old me needs to be applauded for is writing this chapter at all. But more than that, continuing to write. I didn't get discouraged. Well, that's not true. I certainly got discouraged, but I didn't let that discouragement stop me from continuing to write. That's what you have to do with the first chapter. You cannot get overwhelmed by the white space. You just have to set your mind to fill it. I worked in my undergraduate university's writing studio helping students with their academic papers in just any stage of the writing process. And I would have students come in either with an outline terrified to start, or a first draft that they would preface with the statement, this is horrible, please don't judge me, it's just a rough draft. And I would always tell them, a first draft's only job is to exist. That's kind of the tagline on the bottom of my, of my podcast logo, because that's absolutely true. The only purpose of a first draft is to be there. It can always be edited from there. So don't get overwhelmed by that white page abyss like Moby Dick and Ahab and just the whiteness of the whale. How can I not mention Moby Dick in this podcast? I think the one thing my 14-year-old self did well was to let this chapter sit and keep writing and not go back and over-edit. Did I go back and edit it all? No, but I didn't over-edit. I didn't let that paralysis stop me and I just kept going. So Kudos to you, 14-year-old me. I hate the term kudos. Why did I say that? So I think the lessons that can be learned from this first chapter are to remember your first chapter is what needs to hook your reader in terms of your plot and your characters. You don't need to introduce everything, but introduce enough to give them a taste of what your book is about and get them interested. Get them wanting to read the second chapter and the second get them wanting to read the third and such and so forth until the book is over. The second lesson to consider is uh, keep your tense consistent on a very basic level. And lastly, really focus on your pacing. Consider how you're moving from scene to scene and don't feel the need to explain all of your transitions if they're not necessary or don't really serve a purpose to the larger story. Make sure every word that you write is paying its rent, is pulling its weight in the story. All of it should be important and none of it should be filler. Even if it seems like filler, there should be a purpose behind it. So there you have it. There is the first chapter of Cree of Canopy. I would say I hope I hooked you, but uh, based upon what we analyzed, I sure know I didn't with the text, but I hope this podcast did. And until the next episode, keep on writing and keep being kind to yourself.